Well, um, if there was a contender with yesterday's psalm, Psalm 22, for uh, the psalm with the most mysteries and puzzles, it would probably be Psalm 110, this tiny, just seven-verse uh, psalm. It's, it's one of the shorter psalms we're looking at this week. Maybe that's a source of real comfort and joy to you. Um, but uh, just in these few lines, it packs a punch. It, it's also unrelated directly to David's life. Um, uh, as we've seen, one or two of the psalms come from very specific moments, even a specific night, as we saw with Psalm 59. But um, <clears throat> I think we'll see that there's a, a time and a specific, if you like, conversation with God that this psalm was um, inspired by. And it takes, uh, it's written as if uh, David is somehow eavesdropping on a conversation in heaven. It's as if David is somehow eavesdropping on a conversation taking place in heaven. And what is most bizarre about it is that Yahweh, Lord in capital letters there, Yahweh is talking to somebody else. The mystery figure here is not named. He's barely described, except in terms of his role. David just calls him my Lord. And in one way, this psalm, it's full of shadows and allusions that are initially quite difficult to grasp what is going on. And, and I think that this psalm <clears throat> is a perfect recipe for a good old conspiracy theory. You see, just when we thought that King David was the boss under Yahweh, we now discover that there's another link in the chain lurking in the gloom. It's as if a layer of the onion has been peeled back for the first time and we find another layer. Now, some of you know I've been spending the last four years or so with conspiracy theories and having quite a lot of fun. Um, and uh, everybody loves a good uh, conspiracy theory. Um, I googled just the words conspiracy theories last week and it took 30 seconds to produce 13 million links. Just by way of comparison, I googled Hugh Palmer and got 11 million links in th 50 seconds. Uh, he moonlights, did you know this? He moonlights as a photographer, a physiotherapist, and actually, this is interesting, he has a nice line in clothing for men in Australia. <laughs> uh, I should have learned my lesson, though, because I then Googled Mark Menel. I only got quarter of a million in 30 seconds, I know. Apparently, though, as a lifelong fan, I own part of Darlington Football Club. Um, and there, I'm sure there's a conspiracy behind that. Well, anyway, they say that fact is stranger than fiction, and so many will believe even the most outrageous theories these days, won't they? Assuming that the weirder they are, the truer they are. Take the assassination of President Kennedy, or 9-11, or the popularity of the X-Files with its strapline, the truth is out there, that sort of thrives on conspiracy paranoia. People just lap it up. Now, do you remember David Icke? What a extraordinary fellow he is. There he is. Uh, he was a footballer who then declared himself on Wogan to be a son of God and started working t uh, wearing turquoise shell suits. Uh, he moved on from that. Um, he now declares himself to be a full-time investigator into who and what is really controlling the world. And he maintains that the world is ruled by a secret group called the Elite or the Illuminati. If you Google Illuminati, you'll find out all kinds of interesting things. In 1999, he published this book, and it's been since updated, called The Biggest Secret. Uh, he exposed who actually murdered Princess Diana in that. Um, but his most startling claim <clears throat> is that the world is controlled by a race of reptilian humanoids known as the Babylonian Brotherhood, and many prominent figures in the world, this was in the 90s, are actually reptilian, including George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Queen Elizabeth II, Henry Kissinger, and Chris Christopherson. <laughs> it's been updated to include uh, uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, obviously. And uh, he believes that these reptilians engage in drinking blood, human sacrifice, and Satanism. It's all there in the book. 
Eich has further claimed that a small, blood, a small group of Jews led by the Rothschild family, also a reptilian bloodline, apparently, financed Hitler and supported the Holocaust. Eich has strongly denied that this is anti-Semitic because he stresses that the Rothschilds are reptiles and not Jews. <laughs> so that's okay then. It is quite bonkers. It's quite fun to speculate, isn't it, and let the imagination run riot, but actually it's pretty worrying that people believe this stuff. More worryingly, recently he gave a five-hour speech, this is David Icke, to students in Toronto and got a standing ovation. It's Canada for you. Anyway. <clears throat> oh, all right, yeah, yeah. You mean the West Coasters? Oh, okay. So I, I, I've got my now uh, plan for, for the next few months sorted because I want to become very popular. I suppose I'm going to have to start convincing myself that, uh, and others that David Cameron and Roy Hodgson are twins, separated at birth. George Osborne is in fact Genghis Khan. <laughs> and Barack Obama, Hugh Palmer and Vladimir Putin are all hamsters. <laughs> Which is, of course, ridiculous. I hope you agree. And that need, leads us naturally to Psalm 110. <laughs> now, you may think I've completely lost the plot, and, um, and I just wonder whether, um, you know, it just gives a bit of a flavor of the incredulity that David Icke produces, but I just wonder whether when Psalm 110 was first read, it provoked a similar reaction. David Icke is full of talk of the real powers behind the throne, and here we just ha have precisely that, the power behind the throne. It's all very odd. And it perplexed uh, his own contemporaries, and it perplexed Jesus' contemporaries a thousand years later, which is a fact that Jesus uses to his advantage, as we'll see. Because this psalm of David, this psalm, just seven verses, is one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 22 is one of the others. But very often, Psalm 110, and many different people quote it, as I've put just a headline list there in the table of the key ones, um, very often the, the arguments in um, the New Testament depend on the fact of David being the one to have written this. So the argument that Jesus makes and that Paul makes, for instance, depends on the fact that David is the writer of this psalm. And they ask, why else would David have said dot, dot, dot? So the question is, who is this power behind the throne? Why has he come onto the scene? When did he come onto the scene? Is he some sort of puppet master? Like the Wizard of Oz, perhaps? Well, as we try to do a bit of detective work and um, follow David Icke's lead in trying to find out who or what is really in control of the world, let's examine what King David is on about. Now, to avoid con confusion um, with Yahweh the Lord, let's, for simplicity, call the other Lord David's king. So we've got Yahweh the Lord, Yahweh speaking to the Lord, who is David's king, just to distinguish them from David. So you've got David, Yahweh, David's king. And we'll find that actually King David's answers are a whole load more plausible than anything David Icke or anybody else would come up with. And the psalm naturally divides in two. And I wonder if you notice that the, the, the two sort of hinges are the things that Yahweh says to David's king in verse 1 and verse 4. And interestingly enough, those two verses are the key verses quoted in the New Testament by several different writers. Um, so let's uh, take each of them in turn. The first, verse 1, David's God King. Look at um, what he says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, so this what we can work out for starters, is clearly a very privileged position. Yahweh speaking to David's king and saying, sit at my right hand. At the right hand of God. 
I mean, that is no mean invitation. It's said that, you know, if you go to a posh dinner party or something, you always wait to be seated because, you know, if you end up sitting uninvited in the seat of honour next to the host, you just then have to face the embarrassment of being asked, uh, actually, that's not where you're sitting. You don't just sort of impose yourself and sit down. You have to be invited. But here, you know, we're not talking about just sort of dinner party etiquette or a social faux pas. This is something that simply doesn't just happen. We're not in the dining room here. We're in the throne room. The very throne room of Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos, the ruler of the universe. And he says to David's king, come up and sit here. On my right hand. Who is this? Well, we can begin to answer this if we go back a few months, perhaps years, in David's life. Now, we've no idea exactly when it happened or precisely when David wrote this psalm. It's just from his life. But I wonder, the, the, the day in question in David's life, I think, was a watershed day, a day when you know that nothing will be the same again after it. And it happened before everything began to lose its shimmer and sparkle in David's rule. It happened while David was at the top of his game, before things began to go wrong with Bathsheba and co. as we looked at. So turn back with me to 2 Samuel 7, would you? 2 Samuel 7. And the way the writer of Samuel has constructed the book, it's... It's very clear, this is one of the high points. Things begin to go wrong in chapter 11. Incidentally, the way that Solomon's life is described in 1 Kings is similar. You know, everything is um, bright and rosy up to 1 Kings 10. You have the climax there, and then 1 Kings 11, things go downhill as well. But things, uh, we're going back in time. Things are, you know, looking good with David. Things are on top. And... um, Here we are. Now, the context of this is crucial. You see, remember that before this point, Israel has gone through decades of unrest and political instability. The period of the judges has been one of real anxiety and fear, with different armies on all sides marching in, generally causing chaos. The first king, Saul, David's predecessor, he'd done his best to sort things out, but for one reason and another, he failed It was only by the time you get to this point in David's career that things have settled down. So chapter chapter 7, verse 1, tells us that the king was settled in his palace and Yahweh, the Lord, had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now that is a real watershed moment in itself. It's very significant. After years, decades, centuries of turmoil and aggro and instability, there's peace. It's a triumphant moment, a mountaintop moment. And this is why, you know, this is what Israel had been waiting for for decades, for centuries even. Yahweh has delivered. There is rest. And rest is such a powerful biblical image. Completion. The seventh day of rest in the, 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 the creation narrative of Genesis 1. The seventh day, there is rest, not because God's exhausted, but because God's finished. So perhaps you can imagine David on the evening when it first sunk in. Perhaps uh, he sits back by the fire in his favorite armchair gathers a few closest advisors round for a dram or two of his favourite single malt. Marvellous. They toast. Now what? Like any great leader, he naturally starts looking around for something else to be getting on with. I mean, he's achieved what he set out to achieve. Now what? But then it dawns on him, and he expresses it here in verse 2. Look, I'm living in this amazing palace when all the time God's, he's still in a tent. 
A tent is his primary meeting place with the people, the tabernacle. In this tent was kept the so-called Ark of the Covenant, or to put it simply, the covenant box. That's what the Ark was. It was just a box that was rather sort of maradardi and looked nice. But that can't be right, surely. I'm in this palace. Yahweh is living in a tent. He should have a palace too. Let's build him a temple. And the logic is impeccable. The sentiments are noble. And Nathan, in verse 3, he thinks it's a good idea too. Yeah. Yeah, I get the point. Unfortunately, God's reaction was not favorable. And he wants a message to be passed on to David. And that's in verses 5 to 16. And if you can sum up that message, it's very simple. It's, it's look, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And no, this is not another palace as a sort of holiday retreat. No, the house here, and it's interesting that the the, the play on words works both in Hebrew and in English, the house here is a dynasty. The house of David. You see, God has coped perfectly well all these years with his covenant box in a tent. He's fine with that. And we know in other Psalms that, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He doesn't need buildings. And um, as as Paul will say to the Athenians in Acts 17, you know, God, God doesn't need buildings made by human hands. So, you know, as far as God's concerned, why change that now? No, David, you don't need to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, the house of David. But here's something very weird in what David is told through Nathan by God. Two weirdnesses, in fact. Have a look at verse 10. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any longer, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since I appointed leaders or judges, as in the book of Judges, over my people Israel. Now here's the key. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now hang about. Do you see why that's weird? Isn't rest from the enemies precisely what led to David having a little snifter before bed? It's exactly what they've got in verse 1. You have rest. They have rest from the enemies. Are we missing something? Is God blind? They've got rest, and yet God says, rest is to come. Hang on. And then look at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, here's more on the dynasty, the house that God promises. Every great ruler in history has longed to be the head of a great dynasty, haven't they? You know, think of the Tudors. Both Henry VII and Henry VIII's desperation to have sons to succeed and stabilize the family's rule. Not least because Henry VII's claim was iffy, to say the least. But just as with every worldly ruler... So with David, God promises this to David. And it's clear who he has in mind as the successor to build the house. David's son will build the temple, Solomon. But Solomon's not been born yet. In fact, uh, David couldn't know which of his children would be on God's mind. And the weirdest thing, he could never have guessed who the son's mother was going to be because he wasn't even married to her yet. He hadn't even committed adultery with her yet. He hadn't even killed her husband yet. How weird of God to choose a son by Bathsheba. But that's not the weirdest thing either. Look again at verse 16. This dynasty, this throne, would last forever. Now, what's that about? Is that exaggeration? Is that hyperbole? Some kind of sort of weird metaphorical language that nobody really understands? Or or does God really mean what he says here? These are spectacular promises to David, aren't they? I mean, it's almost too much to take in. 
I mean, if we had time, we could read on and see how overwhelmed David is by all this. He, he just, he can't take it all in. He's blown away. Hopefully you see why now. You know, the first weirdness, rest from the enemies is something he already enjoys, and yet God promises one day when they will have rest. In other words, there's something incomplete about this rest that they have. And the second goes beyond even any human king's dreams. He will have a son who will reign forever, or at least a dynasty that will go on forever. <clears throat> so it seems as if David's mountaintop experience was, was no such thing. It was a false summit. So how do these things work? And I want to just sort of take a little detour like I've taken on different days just to think about how Old Testament prophecy gets fulfilled because one of the problems we have with Old Testament prophecy is we, when we read it, it seems very two-dimensional to us, if I can put it like that. And it's like going for a walk in the mountains and you see on the horizon, that's the horizon, those are some mountains in case you're struggling, um, you can tell that Paul's been singing on Hill 2 because it's raining there. Um, but um, from a distance, the horizon makes it look two-dimensional. I mean, you know because you just know from experience that it isn't two-dimensional. Um, but at, from a distance, you actually cannot tell, you cannot discern relative distances heights or anything else, it's very difficult to tell how it all works. And you certainly can't see what's in between, if there is anything in between. I mean, it could be a plateau, or it could be a huge valley in between those things. You just can't tell. So it appears flat. It's two-dimensional. So very often, when the Bible, when the Old Testament has prophecies of things, it looks as though everything, for instance, in a paragraph is going to happen at once. However, when you start walking and you take a profile view, you realize that actually it's not quite like that. And that as you walk, you climb up um, um, peak one and you realize actually there's a huge gap between the first and the second. And you thought you're just going to be able to walk across. No, you've got to go all the way down before you can go up again. And then you have the second peak. And then there's a gap with the third. Now, I noticed, did you notice that in my beautiful artistic diagram here, um, I've deliberately put a full summit. You see, that's a full summit. You think you're getting somewhere, but it's one of those horrible things on walks, isn't it? You know, just nearly there, nearly there. You get to this full summit, and you think, oh, <laughs> bother, yes, bother. Um, there's more to go. <laughs> Well, what David has in 2 Samuel 7 is a bit like a full summit. They've got a picture of what is to come. They've got this rest, but they don't have the full experience of it. And the rest of David's rule plays that out. There are still enemies to deal with. And in fact, there are enemies rather closer to home in his own house he's going to have to deal with. Um, and when you look at what happens after Solomon, the nation is divided in two and Basically, the next few centuries are full of threats and difficulty. But the interesting thing is that when you, you, you start walking through, you realize that it's all three-dimensional and that <clears throat> um, there are vistas, there are gaps that you never realized were there. And I think what we can do is to, to, to understand Old Testament prophecy with three key peaks. And the first is the fulfillment of promises in Israel's history. The second, we can see fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus' first coming. And then sometimes you find that there are prophecies that speak of things that, that actually seem to describe Jesus, and yet there are aspects of those prophecies that really haven't happened yet. And that makes sense only when you realize that he himself talked so much about coming back. And there's a sense in which we now live in this gap between number two and number three. And the New Testament has a name for that gap. This is the last days, the whole thing. The last days isn't just the little bit before the end. The last days is the whole period between two and three. 
And 2 Samuel 7 is just one of those clues along the way to indicate that not everything is what it seems in Old Testament history. It's a bit like a sort of, I don't know, a wormhole in the space-time continuum. I've no, no idea what that really means, but I just thought it sounded quite cool. Um, maybe not. But the point is that these plans will last forever. So let's get back to Psalm 110. Do you see how some of this could well have been on David's mind, these weird promises from God of rest, a place, which they already had, a dynasty that would last forever, descended from David. Do you see, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if these sort of things rattled around David's head and perhaps, you know, uh, <clears throat> if he sort of woke up in the middle of the night and, I don't know, was a bit hot and bothered or he had a bunged up nose or something, these sort of things would, would occur to him. What is this? What does this mean? Who is this? And, and perhaps that's when he was just, I don't know, given, um, you know, a little insight, a, a glimpse uh, into this heavenly conversation. God sort of tells him this is one of the things, this is one of the conversations we're having. But you see, whether or not it's his imagination working things out or he just has a dream and sees it or, or whatever, the point is this, David is putting two and two together. He's recognizing that there is another king who must be greater than himself because he's gonna rule forever even if that king will rule forever on David's throne. So David has worked out, at the very least, that something pretty special is coming. An eternal king to bring two true peace and secure boundaries for God's people forever. That's the very least that David could work out, and probably much more. And as the, t the hymns put it, he is, this one to come must be great David's greater son. Son as in heir heir to the throne, one to whom Yahweh says, come up here and sit at my right hand. In other words, it's not just a question of privilege, it's a sharing of purpose. Share my rule and my authority as king, sit at my right hand. And verse 2 and 3 expands on that in the psalm. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule them in the midst of your enemies. But remember, the day will come when they're going to become a footstool for you to rest your weary feet on. The enemies probably wouldn't come willingly. But it's, it's not about gloating. It's not about meanness or yabu. This is about facing reality. It's as, as real and basic and fundamental to existence as gravity is and the need for breathing air. This is just reality. But if the enemies don't come willingly, his team, verse 3, your troops will be willing, and then you'll be arrayed in holy majesty. Now, if that is not talking about some sort of divine figure, I don't know what is. You know, this is a king for sure, but holy? A perfect king? Well, he'd have to be if he was going to sit on the right hand of God himself. It's not possible for just any old person to amble into God's presence, let alone sit next to him. You know, when it's the sort of house opening of, uh, the, the, the state opening of Parliament, um, you know, and the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and everybody else sort of parades in and the House of Commons are left standing by the door. I love that bit. Um, and, you know, they're sort of, in fact, half the House of Commons can't even see what's going on. It's fantastic. Um, but, you know, you can't, you, you, no one's just going to be able to just sort of wander up. So, you know, the, the, the state opening of Parliament, you know, you know, not even the peers, not even the Lord Chancellor can just sort of amble up and, you know, say, sort of give nudge to Prince Philip and say, oh, do you mind if I sit here? It's not quite appropriate. So, so this, is, this is not just any old person. So is it any wonder that David regards this figure as superior to himself? And that is precisely the argument the New Testament uses. You see, when Jesus is discussing the issue with the Pharisees towards the end of his life, 
You see, on the basis of Psalm 110, Jesus proves that David's royal descendant must be superior to David. As Jesus says, why else would he address him as my Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, David's king is David's Lord. He's clearly a descendant as the power behind his own throne and a power at the right hand of God's throne. This is the power behind the throne. Now, David Eichenkoe might have their conspiracy theories about, you know, who really is in control, people in their darkened rooms and secret meeting places and so on. But David points us to the one who really is the boss. And his is no malign or dangerous influence. There's no pulling of strings or moving pawns on some cosmic chessboard. That's not what this Lord is like. Far from it, you see, his power, despite its divine scope and intensity, is in safe hands. Power, absolute power, cosmic power, is in safe hands. Now, some here will welcome the reminder that this world isn't completely out of control, that, that there is someone who is a benign influence in the world, but others will think about that and say, that's ridiculous, where's the evidence? Look at the news, read the front pages of the paper. I haven't seen the paper today, but I don't even need to. Read the front line, uh, headlines. Where's the power behind the throne there? Where's the benign influence in this world? Who's really calling the shots? But you see, that is a gross distortion because when you see what this divine king is really like, then you'll banish thoughts of conspiracy theories and cosmic puppet masters forever. We'll see that his power is truly in safe hands. So we come to the second bit. And, and we see not only is this figure David's God king, he's also David's priest king. Now, you may not think that's weird, but I guarantee that for a Jewish person, first hearing about this, and certainly in Jesus' lifetime, would have thought this is scandalous. And yet, it's made very, very clear in verse 4, Yahweh the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. Nothing's going to change his mind. He's going to be stubborn on this one. So what's the big deal? Why so emphatic? God has sworn. As if that's not enough, he puts it another way. God is not going to change his mind, whatever you might think on this. You got it? This is rock solid. This is going to happen. So then we naturally expect some sort of earthquake, some thunderous revelation. What is this rock solid truth that God is not going to be budged on? You are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What on earth does that mean? What an anticlimax, if ever there was one. Well, this really is no anticlimax. It actually changes everything. Because it changes our view of the divine king. Utterly. Because, you see, it means he is also the priest king. Now, you're probably sitting here thinking, well, I don't have a problem with that. Does anybody here have a problem with the divine king being the priest king? No? No one's got a problem with that. I don't think they have a problem with that. But in Jesus' day and in David's day, lots of people would have had a problem with that. Because if you were an ancient Jew, the idea would have been absolutely absurd. You can't have priests who are kings. It's as absurd as talking about freezing fire and breathable concrete or even... Hamsters as rectors. That is absurd. Ooh. <laughs> I've put the cat amongst the pigeons there, haven't I? <clears throat> but actually, it's more serious than that. When God created the new people of Israel, he instituted separation of powers. The idea of separation of powers is not new. It's not some great innovation from the um, American 
war of independence and new constitution. No, separation of powers is something that God institutes in his ancient covenant. And so when he created the new people of Israel, he set aside the tribe of Levi to be the priests, and he gave special status to those specifically descended from Moses' brother, Aaron. And you can read all about it in the book of Numbers. And there was a clear separation of powers. You had the priesthood on a basis, on appointed on the basis of their birth. You had the judges and kings taken from any of the other tribes. And finally, you had prophets individually called by God from all walks of life in order to, heal, uh, to, to hold the leaders, both uh, kings and prophets, but kings in particular, to hold them accountable. And the clear distinctions, the clear separation was never to be blurred. The penalties, even for kings who overstepped the mark, were severe. This is how God intended it. So remember King Uzziah, who was in many ways a great king, but his pride brought him down, and he decided that he was worthy, able, certainly willing, to burn incense at the altar himself, which only Aaron's descendants could do. You can see that in two chronicles. But as a result, he's struck down with leprosy. The king can't make up the rules, even though he's the king. And, um, and it's interesting. Do you remember Isaiah's famous um, vision in the temple in Isaiah 6? It's described as timed as in the year King Uzziah died. Normally, you would expect to say in the year that Fred becomes king, but no, the sign of the times was the fact that this was the year King Uzziah died, and that was representative of the state of the nation in many ways. So when David starts quoting God, referring to the king as a priest, it raises at very least, an eyebrow. It's almost as if David is aware of the controversy. Why else emphasize the solidity of God's promise? His swearing an oath, his unchanging decision. It's like David is saying, yeah, I know this is odd, but God really has said this, and he's not going to be budged. But some alert Jews, you see, might assume that God has changed his mind. After all, didn't he make it clear? If by priest, however, you mean someone who is a member of the tribe of Levi, a priest in the Old Covenant, yes, God has been very, very clear. But the genius of what we have in Psalm 110 is that we're talking about something older than Levi and the Levites. He mentions this funny chap, Melchizedek, who described way back in Genesis 14 as a priest long before the tribe of Levi even existed. So the argument here is a matter of precedence. Here you have King Melchizedek, who is also a priest, long before God created the covenant and instituted the separation of powers. All right? The precedence of it is important. He's a contemporary of Abraham. He's very mysterious. The sort of swirls and mists of time uh, circulate around him, particularly thick uh, around him as it's trying, we try to work out who or what is going on. But these are the facts. He's a contemporary of Abraham, and Abraham respects him enough to pay him homage. And he's the king of Salem, which is the forerunner of Jerusalem. And his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he mediates between God and Abraham. He received on God's behalf Abraham's tithe and gave gifts in return. So he's a king worthy of homage in Salem. His name means king of righteousness. And he mediates between Abraham and God. So do you see he's a king with a priestly function. Priests mediate between heaven and earth. Now, does that matter? Well, it matters a lot because it matters because David is speaking of somebody, his lord, David's king, who is in the order of this priest king. And it's no accident. Did you know this? That the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, when it was first uh, sort of shaped in the Reformation, do you know what were the, the special reading for Christmas Day is. 
one of the special psalms. It's Psalm 110. Which is pretty odd if you think about it. What's that got to do with Christmas? Well, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Well, we celebrate the birth of a king, yes. And Matthew, at the start of his gospel, has a genealogy clearly proving Jesus' royal credentials, proving he is a descendant of David all the way back. And he's in the royal tribe of Judah, therefore. He's a Judaite, not a Levite. But if he's in the order of Melchizedek, Being a Judaite does not prevent him being a priest. He can be royal and priestly simultaneously. And do you remember why Matthew, at the very beginning of Matthew 1, describes Jesus being given the name Jesus? You will call him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Yeshua, Yoshua. Jesus. Dealing with sin, you see, dealing with our rebellion against God, that is not a royal job, but a priestly job. Priests are the ones in the Old Covenant who deal with sin. So if Jesus is going to be able to deal with our sin, he must be priestly. And yet, he's great David's greatest son. So here in Psalm 110, as in Matthew 1, the two are combined, a priest-king in the order of Melchizedek, and that is ultimately, of course, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you find that the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about Melchizedek, and people get worried about Melchizedek. What do you do with Melchizedek? No, Melchizedek's cool. He's, he's, a, he's a dude. And Jesus is the great high priest, the priest forever, the one who truly deals with sin. And the very least we can say is that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of this, a precedence, a precedent for this. And this is why we need not fear the cosmic absolute power of the king. I mean, we fear power getting into the wrong hands, don't we? But look what the priest God King does with his power. This is from Hebrews 1. Let me just read it to you. Just just let these words soak in. After the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, had provided purification for sins, what does he do? He sits down. He sat down, Hebrews 1 verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Does that ring any bells? Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit, not because he's tired, but because he's finished. And Hebrews says, the work he's finished is to provide purification for sins, which is what priests do. So do you see what Hebrews has done? David's divine and priestly descendant king is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross on Good Friday, rose on Easter. Well, of course he did. He's at the right hand of God. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Of course he rose. No wonder death was unable to keep a hold on him. Of course he rose. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that the king dealt with sin. That's the big deal. The resurrection was, well, I don't want to downplay it at all. I was going to say afterthought, but it's not. It's it's just, of course it happened. Now, you'll be relieved to know that we're getting to the point of all this. (laughs) But this psalm is not the most quoted in the New Testament psalm for nothing. It is jam-packed. Why do we need to take it seriously? Well, it's about Jesus, the true king, the one to whom kings and emperors must bow, willingly or not, and that includes God's king, David. David knows that his king, the power behind his throne, the real power behind the throne, is in control of the universe, and that is an awesome thing. He deserves our worship. And by that mean, we mean our devotion and obedience 24-7. But we must see what he does with his power. 
It is incredible power, but it is in safe hands because he uses his power to come to earth as the slave king, the sacrificial king, the defeated king on the cross, as we saw yesterday in Psalm 22. That is what David's king does. He was the ultimate priest king because he offered the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. Did you notice in the psalm all those future tenses? And the point God makes in his first instructions to David's king is that he is to sit down at the right hand until, until what? Until his enemies are defeated and humbled, and then at the end, until the day of his wrath, when, verse 5, kings will be crushed and nations held to account, he will have authority and power of God to judge the world. You look at the Middle East, you look at Syria, you look at Ukraine and Iraq and North Korea and parts of China, you look at the corruption in places like Westminster and Brussels and Washington. You look at the terrible things that corporations do from their boardrooms down. You look at the gangs, you look at all these terrible things, you just read your newspaper. And you say, is God really in control? Is there really a power behind the throne? Or is this just looks like chaos to me? This looks like randomness, irrationality, evil. We long for justice. We long for that, don't we? God, that's not fair. Isn't that the very heart of our deepest yearnings? God, that's not fair. So we look at verse 5, and you might recoil from it, but, but, but no. Don't you think that the aggressors of what's going on need to be stopped? And sometimes that means their power needs to be crushed. The fear of always, you know, in circumstances where you're trying to debate taking action, you know, I guess I don't envy leaders around the world trying to work out what on earth to do with our, do we go back in again, do we bomb, do we send the SAS and SEALs, or, or what do we do? I don't envy that sort of decision making, it's horrible. People are far too quick to um, just dismiss those in power and say, oh, you know, they're warmongers. No, I don't believe that. But the fear is when you go in and crush one enemy, then there'll be ten others come up who will do something worse, and that seems to be what's going on. No, you want the, 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 the horrors to be stopped in their tracks and stopped for good, and that takes cosmic power. We long for verse 5, don't we? My friends in Syria do. Don't be squeamish about it. It's not God being malicious or cruel or gloating. It is God bringing justice and saying, no more. And our problem is we keep singing the same song. How long must we sing this song? But you see, he's coming. And he will judge the nations. There will be justice. The UN Court of Human Rights isn't enough. Brussels isn't enough. There must be this justice, this judgment. Otherwise, the sinners, the perpetrators, the genocidal megalomaniac get away with it. And the God King who sacrifices himself for rebels as the priest king cannot and will not allow evil to continue. And so what you see here is basically the period before the third peak in our mountain range. This is a conversation when the Lord says to David's king, sit down at my right hand after he's done performed purification for sins, as Hebrews said, until he comes again to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the creed. So this psalm, if you like, is... A conversation in heaven discussing Jesus' return. (coughs) 
Well, this is my final cross-reference. Listen to some words from Paul's sermon in Athens, Acts 17. After referring to the problem of worshipping all these non-existent gods when there is only one true God, Paul goes on like this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Is that ringing bells? He has given proof of all this to all men by raising him from the dead. You want to know this is going to happen? The resurrection proves it. According to Paul, the first Easter demonstrates the truth of Psalm 110, that the God King will judge. Jesus rose from the dead. He's the Lord of the cosmos. He is David's Lord. But there is hope because he's also the priest king. What do we do? We come to the priest king and say, forgive us, Lord. Not because we deserve it, but because we recognize we don't. Forgive us, Lord, because you are my priest. You are the one who's died for me. No one else has died for me. Has anyone else died for you in quite this way? Uh, Kings in history have called on their subjects to march for them and die for them in battle. Our king is the only king in history who's died for his subjects. No other king's done that. So will you find yourself a willing servant of David's king, one of the countless members of his kingdom who flocked to him in verse 3? Flock to him for that final battle, that final return, when he comes with his absolute power and display. This is when you have a life and lifestyle of worship for his true authority, for our king, who is also our rescuer friend, the divine king, who is the priest king, great David's greater son, the one who is descended from David and yet who will reign on his throne forever bringing God's people to a place where they will have true rest. 2 Samuel 7 was just a full summit. It was good. It was not perfect. So I'm going to close out with a piece of music very different from one of the faves I played in the choral music evening, so if you were there, forgive me for repeating it. If you don't like choral music, just give this a go. It's called Fair as the Heaven, and it was written um, in the 20s, but it's a poem by, um, oh, what's his name? Spencer, thank you. And um, so it's oldie-worldie language, but Spencer is part of a longer poem imagining the wonder of heaven. And it's sung, it's for two unaccompanied choirs, and just listen to how the choirs answer each other. <laughs> 